RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. My name is Peter Mansfield and I'm a partner at law firm RPC. Now usually on this podcast I have a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. But this August we are doing something different. Instead of our normal fortnightly podcast we are releasing two episodes a week. So eight episodes in total in a series entitled Meditations on Insurance and Society. So, welcome to Meditations on Insurance and Society. In these eight meditations, we examine the role that insurance has played throughout history in shaping society. These meditations will incorporate a bit of philosophy, some psychology, a dash of anthropology, a few film references, a lot of insurance, and who knows what else. Think of it as a podcast blockbuster. This eighth and final meditation is called The Unexpected Triumph of Morality, and in it I discuss the future of insurance and how its dance, its centuries-old dance with society, may develop in the coming decades. Having discussed philosophy in the last meditation, we move on to ethics, because it is a tale of ESG and the paradox at its heart. It is a tale of insurance's belief that it has inherent social value, that it sustains and nourishes society. But we ask, to what extent can that argument itself be sustained in light of the climate crisis and the moral dilemma that it creates? We build to a fitting finale as we envisage an alliance of insurance and society against a common foe, and we end on a crescendo of hope. It is a fascinating story and it starts here. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter 1. Stepping Forward into the Limelight So, we have reached the final meditation. Congratulations to everyone who has made it this far. Your reward is... Well, actually, it's just another meditation, so sorry about that. Anyway, it's now time to look at the future of insurance and to make a few predictions. Although, in reality... I have only one prediction, which is summed up in the title of this episode, The Unexpected Triumph of Morality. Now, before I go any further, don't worry. I am not going to be saying what insurers should or should not do. That is not my purpose in this meditation. I am not here as some sort of moral arbiter. My aim, as it has been throughout these meditations, is to be an observer, a commentator. And In recent years, by which I really mean just the last three or four, one trend I have observed within insurance is the rise of morality. And for reasons that I'll explain in this meditation, my view is that this will become the dominant trend in insurance over the next few decades, more dominant even than the development of technology, the increase in regulation or the threat of systemic risk. But first, let me provide some context. This series of meditations has endeavoured to explore the role that insurance plays in society, starting way back when in the dim distant past and continuing all the way up to today. And throughout, one theme has been consistent. Insurance has a tendency to do its job unseen, below the radar. In Meditation 4, I described insurance as the unmoved mover, exerting its influence through nudge and nuance. And in Meditation 7, Towards the Philosophy of Insurance, I compared insurance to the mycorrhizal system, the subterranean network of fungal strands that exists invisibly beneath our feet. Indeed, insurance is often so unseen, so subterranean, so below the radar even the insurance industry itself loses sight of its societal importance. But my argument in this final meditation is that this will change. In the next few decades, the role of insurance will, in my opinion, 
be increasingly thrust into the limelight. In some respects, of course, this is just the natural consequence of the modern ubiquity of insurance, a ubiquity that we discussed in Meditation 6, everyone, everywhere, all at once. Because it's hard to remain anonymous when you're everywhere. But more than that, as insurance is thrust into the limelight, my belief is that it will increasingly be called upon to fulfil a role with which it may feel uncomfortable, a role that could be described as consciously ethical. And I believe that decisions taken by insurance in response to this development will have wide-ranging implications for both the insurance industry and the society within which it operates. If I'm right, this rise in morality has the potential to generate the greatest change in insurance since the creation of premium-based insurance in the early 1300s. But first, I guess I should explain what I mean by morality. Chapter 2. Shared Intentionality Let's start our discussion of morality by returning to our primate cousins, the chimpanzees and the very closely related bonobos. In his book, The Bonobo and the Atheist, the primatologist Franz de Waal argues that what we now call morality originated from the social interactions of our primate ancestors, because, in his opinion, the origins of morality can be found in the desire that social mammals have to live together harmoniously. In simple terms, primates do not like to fall out with each other. Okay, at this point, a quiz question for you. What do you think happens if you throw a single peanut equidistantly between two fully grown male baboons? Now, you might expect them to have a big punch-up, but when a researcher actually did this, the two baboons each studiously ignored the peanut, choosing to put their self-interest on hold in favour of their ongoing relationship with each other. So, it seems that if possible, primates will avoid conflict. But if they do fall out with each other, they then do their best quickly to repair the damage. For example, if a fight breaks out in a group of chimpanzees, a lot of energy is then spent afterwards in an exaggerated process of reconciliation. Duval's view is that the moral law is not imposed from above or derived from well-reasoned principles, Rather, it arises from ingrained values that have been there since the beginning of time. In a famous experiment, the video of which can be found on YouTube, two capuchin monkeys are asked to perform the same simple task. The first time they complete the task, they are each rewarded with a slice of cucumber, and each happily eats the cucumber. After all, cucumbers may be a bit bland, but they're still quite refreshing. But when they do the task a second time, one monkey is rewarded again with cucumber, but the other gets a grape. Mmm, a much, much greater prize. The first monkey sees this, and in response to the obvious injustice, it angrily hurls the cucumber away and throws a full-on toddler tantrum. As humans, we watch this and we laugh because we understand exactly what is going on, and we know that we would act just like the capuchins. But once, when the same experiment was done with chimpanzees, something remarkable happened, because even the chimpanzee receiving the grape refused to eat it until the other chimpanzee had also received a grape, an equal reward. As Duval says, fairness and justice are therefore best looked at as ancient capacities. The psychologist Jonathan Haidt, in his truly brilliant book The Righteous Mind, agrees. He acknowledges that proto-morality can be seen in both chimpanzees and bonobos, but he draws a distinction between that and the moral systems that exist throughout the human world. And he puts this down to the development of shared intentionality between humans. A simple example would involve one human pulling down a branch of an apple tree so that another can pick the fruit more easily. Now, this is a basic human skill, but it is one that chimpanzees, for example, have never mastered. Humans have the ability 
to work together, to collaborate. And Haidt's argument is that this shared intentionality developed naturally into a belief that there were right ways to do things and wrong ways. Pulling down a branch to help a colleague pluck fruit ceases to be something that can be done and becomes something that should be done. And this development of shared intentionality generated an evolutionary advantage because those groups that collaborated better increased in number and larger groups can dominate larger areas. One theory is that shared intentionality may even have provided the impetus for the creation of language, which then in turn acted as a catalyst for further behavioural change. And these changes in our behaviour eventually led to changes in our genes. Studies of the human genome, for example, show that human evolution sped up around 50,000 years ago, because as humans collaborated more, certain genetic traits became more valuable than others. And through the process of natural selection, these genetic qualities spread through the population. This process has been described as self-domestication, because even before we domesticated dogs, pigs and sheep, taming their wild natures and making them ever more placid, we went through the same process ourselves. Now, if this genetic change started to occur about 50,000 years ago, then that would coincide with the chronology that I explored in Meditation 1 in response to fear, the chronology of developments that led ultimately to agriculture, villages, religions, cities and insurance. So, according to Haidt, the development of shared intentionality, which resulted in our self-domestication, led directly to the formation of moral systems within human groups. Haidt's definition of a moral system is this. An interlocking set of values, virtues, norms, practices, identities, institutions, technologies and evolved psychological mechanisms that work together to suppress or regulate self-interest and make cooperative societies possible. Hmm. Regulating self-interest and making cooperative societies possible. Doesn't that sound at least vaguely similar to the concept of the beneficial selfishness of strangers from Meditation 3, in which our self-interest is harnessed through the pooling of premium for the benefit of all? Doesn't Haidt's definition sound very much like insurance? So that we don't miss this point, let's repeat that definition, but with insurance in mind. Indeed, let's replace the word moral system with the word insurance. Insurance is an interlocking set of values, virtues, norms, practices, identities, institutions, technologies and evolved psychological mechanisms that work together to suppress or regulate self-interest and make cooperative societies possible. I mean, it's, it's not a perfect match by any means, but neither is it a million miles away. So is it possible that insurance is a moral system? Chapter 3. The ESG Paradox We'll come back later to the concept of insurance as a moral system. I'm personally not convinced that it is, but the discussion will lead us to some interesting places. First, though, I want to spend some time discussing ESG. Now, as almost everyone listening to this podcast will know, ESG stands for Environmental Social Governance. It's a clunky set of words, and to be honest, it is probably time that we came up with something better, but be that as it may. In recent years, ESG has experienced a stunning rise up the list of priorities for corporate boards around the world. And I think that this sudden and surprising development has a lot to teach us about what we can expect to see in insurance in the next few decades. So, to understand it, let's first step back in time to the 1960s and walk through a panelled oak door into a room at the Chicago School of Economics. There... Seated in a functional leather-backed chair is a bespectacled man with a kind face, a grandfatherly face. He is the world-famous economist, Milton Friedman. Born in 1912 and winner of the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1976, nowadays 
Friedman is probably best known as being the chief cheerleader for the free market monetarist policies adopted in the 1980s by Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. But I want to discuss another of his doctrines, namely shareholder theory. Shareholder theory is the belief that a company has no social responsibility to the public or society. Instead, a company's only purpose is to increase its profits and thereby maximise the financial return for its shareholders. Now, just in case you think I'm making this up, I will quote from his 1962 book, Capitalism and Freedom. There is one and only one social responsibility of business, to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits, so long as it stays within the rules of the game, which is to say, engages in open and free competition without deception and fraud. In effect, Friedman was saying that, provided that a company did not act illegally or fraudulently, it could do whatever it wanted to make money. Whatever it wanted. In other words, when viewed through a purely economic lens, it was ethical for a company to act in ways that most people would regard as unethical. And believe me, it gets worse. Because shareholder theory also states that if a company wants to act in a way that many people would regard as ethical, then that would be unethical from an economic perspective. Because, according to shareholder theory, any attempt to act ethically would breach a company's duty to its shareholders. I, I mean, I know, I don't get it either, but you know, that's, that's what the theory is. Friedman's definition of unethical, therefore, was so narrow that almost every company, other than perhaps those controlled by the mafia, was ethical. Up is down, right is wrong, the Pope's a Presbyterian, and bears habitually use public conveniences. The dominance of shareholder theory in the last 50 years has allowed companies to pursue profit at the expense of almost everything else, environmental protection, employee welfare, health and safety, and so on. However, in 2011, the economist Alex Edmonds made a surprising discovery. He analysed the companies in the Fortune 100 best companies to work for and discovered that they had outperformed their peers by 2% to 3% per year between 1984 and 2009. Surprise, surprise! It turns out that being nice is more successful than being nasty. In the 1987 film Wall Street, Gordon Gekko famously said that greed is good. Well, he was wrong, as any chimpanzee could have told him, or indeed even a capuchin monkey. Greed is not good. It is ethics that is good. It is good morally, and as it so happens, it is good financially. That is the lesson taught to us by evolution and by our primate ancestors. But it took us until 2011 to work it out for ourselves. And in truth, I suspect that even now we still haven't grasped it properly as a truth. Propelled by Edmund's research, though, the pension companies and other big investors started to set up investment funds with a focus on ethical companies. And a form of niche investment that had previously been called responsible or ethical investment was rebranded as the mainstream ESG. ESG therefore looks as though it is about ethics and morality. Indeed, Wikipedia defines ESG as an evaluation of a company's collective conscientiousness for environmental and social factors. So, is this the death of shareholder theory? Well, no, sadly not. In September 2015, various international organisations published a document called fiduciary duty in the 21st century, which concluded that failing to consider all long-term investment drivers, including ESG issues, is a failure of fiduciary duty. Wow. You know, ignoring ESG is a failure of fiduciary duty, or at least it might be. Well, that's good news, isn't it? But no, hang on. Whoa, whoa, back up, back up. I think we've missed something here. Let's rewind that a bit. Failing to consider all long-term investment drivers, including ESG issues, is a failure of fiduciary duty. 
Hmm. Because note the way that ESG is being presented. It is seen in purely financial terms as a long-term investment value driver. The logic of that statement is that if ESG ever ceased to be a value driver, then it would be a breach of fiduciary duty to invest in it. In other words, the orthodoxy of shareholder value is not being challenged. ESG is a permissible form of investment because, and solely because, it is more profitable. Larry Fink of BlackRock has expressed this point in characteristically blunt terms. Stakeholder capitalism is not about politics. It is not a social or ideological agenda. It is not woke. We focus on sustainability not because we are environmentalists, but because we are capitalists and fiduciaries to our clients. And therein lies the paradox at the heart of ESG. It looks like morality. It smells like morality. It tastes like morality. But it is, in fact, about money. Which is really rather disappointing, because it transpires that the corporate world is simply using ethics as a mask for profit. ESG is the smiley face emoji of capitalism. Or... Is it? Chapter 4. Pinocchio becomes a real boy. In science, the act of observation often changes that which is being observed. This phenomenon is called, rather unimaginatively, the observer effect. To observe an electron, for example, involves an interaction with that electron that changes its path. And the use of a thermometer to measure the temperature of a thing unavoidably changes the temperature of that thing. And that's because of our old friend, the second law of thermodynamics, which was mentioned in Meditation 7, towards a philosophy of insurance. Another example is this. To observe the troop of chimpanzees in the wild involves a human presence, which may then alter the behaviour of those chimpanzees. And in the human context, if you judge a school solely by its exam results, then it is highly likely that the school will then focus on those exam results to the detriment of much else. There's a similar phenomenon in the world of money. According to McKinsey, in May 2020, a quarter of all assets under management in the US, or roughly $12 trillion, were ESG-rated investments. And because ESG is therefore being observed in that sense, it inevitably creates a huge incentive for companies to be seen as being ESG-friendly. So now, in 2023, you show me an insurer's website and I will show you a page on sustainability. Insurers are producing dozens of policies on topics as diverse as climate change, gender, charitable work, modern slavery, tax transparency, and so on. There is a battle to be seen as virtuous. I mean, LinkedIn is full of it. As a consequence, in the corporate world, the definitions of ethical and unethical are changing. In fact, I would go further than that and say that they have already changed. The narrow definitions imposed by shareholder theory have been dismantled and are being replaced with something new. To be ethical now means to be ESG. And if you are non-ESG, you are now deemed to be unethical. What would Milton Friedman say if he could see this? Well, actually, we can guess at what he would say. But in my opinion, he'd be wrong. Shareholder theory was always flawed. It was too purist. It was a form of economic fundamentalism to say there is one and only one social responsibility of business, namely to increase its profits. It just took us a little while to work that out. In any event, irrespective of what Friedman would say, the reality is that in 2023, ESG has now achieved escape velocity and has become a free-floating concept. Just as Pinocchio wanted to be a real boy, so ESG wanted to be a real... Um, uh, a real thing, as opposed to just being the wooden puppet of finance. ESG ceased to be simply a description used by investors for a certain type of investment. 
It became an aspiration, and as a result of regulation, it has also become an obligation. ESG ceased to be an adjective and became a noun. In a 2019 article, the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance described ESG as an organization's social license to operate. What had started out as a marketing wheeze for a pension fund had become the essential must-have if a business wanted to trade. Now, of course, it is always possible that the ESG bubble will burst. If companies start losing money because of ESG, then it is easy to see corporate boards turning against it. After all, shareholder theory, despite its obvious flaws and irrationality, has not yet been replaced with a more workable alternative. However, now that ESG has become a free-floating concept, it is really hard to see it disappearing. As a set of behaviours, it is consistent with our evolutionary past. As a concept, it is consistent with our shared intentionality. And as a motivation, ESG fits with our societal concerns for equality and high levels of environmental stewardship. And it is also something that is now being regulated. In other words, Pinocchio has become a real boy. Chapter 5. Yes, we're all individuals. Earlier on, I raised a question. Is insurance a moral system? And I said then that we'd come back to it. Well, now is the time to consider that question more fully. And I want to do so through a discussion around social good. Investopedia defines social good as something that benefits the largest number of people in the largest possible way, such as clean air, clean water, healthcare and literacy. Insurance likes to see itself as a form of social good. For example, in a 2021 report on ESG, Lloyds of London stated, Insurance has always had a clear social purpose running through it, built on the idea that the pooling of risk by many can protect the misfortunes of the few. As an aside, please note that this is a moral statement. It talks of clear social purpose and protecting the misfortunes of the few. This use of moral language and moral argument is indicative of the changes that I am discussing in this meditation. Anyway, this statement contains two elements. First, that insurance has always had a clear social purpose. And second, that this social purpose is built on the system of pooling. We'll come back to pooling in a moment, but first, let's discuss whether insurance does in fact have a clear social purpose. My interpretation of that statement is that when it comes to social purpose or the social good or morality, if you will, insurance does enough simply by being insurance. Like clean air, clean water, healthcare and literacy, Insurance is, in some way, inherently moral. It generates common good. It is on the side of the angels. And the justification for this conclusion? Well, according to Lloyd's, it is to do with pooling. It is because the pooling of risk by many can protect the misfortunes of the few. Now, this is, of course, correct. To an extent. A million car owners pay their premiums into an enormous pot, but only a few thousand will draw on that pot in any given year. As we discussed in Meditation 3, the principle undergirding commercial insurance is that of the beneficial selfishness of strangers. We do not buy insurance for altruistic reasons, we buy it for selfish reasons, for our own peace of mind. Yet in so doing, we inadvertently benefit others. In that respect, insurance is weirdly both individualistic and collectivist. In the film The Life of Brian, there is a famous scene in which a crowd collectively shouts as one, Yes, we're all individuals. Insurance is that crowd. In an insurance pool, everyone is an individual, but everyone is also linked. And through the pool... Insurance redistributes money. But it does not do so from the rich to the poor, as a socialist would want. 
but from those who don't make an insurance claim to those that do. The Lloyds report describes this as the many protecting the misfortunes of the few, which gives it a a sense of altruism, of justice, and perhaps even of charity. But the misfortune in question might be a multi-millionaire crashing their Rolls Royce into their 16th century manor house, and the many who pay for that might be nurses, cleaners and bus drivers, those who drive carefully that year and make no claims. Their premiums are paid into the insurance pool and are paid out to, well, someone else. So I'm not convinced that the system of pooling is enough to sustain the argument that insurance has a social purpose, even less that it is a moral system. Because it is not a system based on altruism, whether intentional or accidental. It is a system based on contract. It is not a moral system founded on an interlocking set of values, virtues and norms. It is a legal system enforceable through the courts. And, unlike most moral systems, there is no commonality in the community of adherence. Within Islam or Hinduism or even humanism, there is a commonality of core belief. But that does not exist in insurance. If the insured community is a community at all, it is radically different from those that see themselves as showing beliefs or a culture. In the context of commercial insurance, the group is defined solely, solely by its insurability. That is the only common link between them all. The group is limited to those who are insurable. It therefore excludes those who are uninsurable, which includes those who cannot afford to pay. It is therefore possible that insurance excludes those who need it the most. Is that what we mean by social good? I think not. Indeed, you can argue that insurance actually generates social harm rather than social good. In Meditation 2, An Irreligious Faith, we discuss the fact that the Amish objects to the concept of insurance because it encourages individuals to rely on their insurance policy rather than on the community. The Amish believe that insurance directly undermines community values. In their minds, insurance is the triumph of the individualistic mindset and therefore runs counter to their sense of what it means to be community. And of course they are right. Insurance is a replacement for societal support. It denies us the chance to help our neighbours and our friends and for them to help us. In some small way, therefore, insurance drives us apart. Insurance responds to and promotes the individualism of the Western world. I therefore query whether insurance genuinely has an inherent social purpose. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think that insurance is brilliant. That's why I've written this podcast series and it is a constant theme on the Insurance Covered podcast. Furthermore, I am absolutely convinced of two things. I am convinced that insurance has a social impact and I am convinced that insurance has the potential for social value. As the great underwriter Stephen Catlin says in his book Risk and Reward in the context of natural catastrophes, it has been proven time and again that when a large portion of a loss is insured, there is less human deprivation, faster economic recovery, and a lower cost to the taxpayer. So there is undoubted social value, but my point is that insurance's value does not come from the fact that it is intrinsically good. In my opinion, we are wrong to think of insurance as something that has inherent social purpose. In my opinion, insurance is at best morally neutral but its neutrality comes with a twist because insurance absorbs the moral system of that which it insures. I made this point in Meditation 5, Unmoved Mover, in the context of the North Atlantic trade in enslaved Africans. When insurance insures something immoral, it enables that immorality and insurance itself becomes immoral. Conversely, when it insures something moral, it enables that morality and insurance itself becomes moral. So, insurance is not moral simply because it is insurance. 
It has to work at it. It has to choose to be moral. If we want insurance to have social purpose, we must give it social purpose. Chapter 6. What is the purpose of insurance? Of course, the answer to the question, should we give insurance a social purpose, is not necessarily an obvious one, because I would argue that the social impact of insurance for the last 700 years, as explained in the first six meditations, has been a direct result of its moral neutrality. Insurance, like the sun, shines on the righteous and the unrighteous, provided they pay their premiums. When a bookshop sells the latest bestseller or a supermarket a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc, they do not ask the purchaser how they want to use that novel or that wine. They do not care. Similarly, for the last seven centuries, insurers have sold insurance to anyone who wants to buy insurance. The one exception to that has been during times of war, when selling insurance to the enemy was sometimes, but, but not always, discouraged or prohibited. But generally, insurance has been sold as a commodity, no different from books or booze. And generally, that has worked for the benefit of society, because insurance has enabled things, such as trade, transport and technical development, that are, generally speaking, good for society. With the rise of ESG, though, and particularly its emergence as a standalone concept, we find ourselves asking an existential question. What is the purpose of insurance? In 2023, are there businesses, and the obvious example is the fossil fuel industry, that are now so unrighteous that they should no longer have access to the benefits provided by insurance? But actually, before we answer that, let's go back a little bit. In January 2022, Julian Richardson was a guest on Insurance Covered, and we discussed sustainable insurance. Julian explained that an insurer's business can be split into three elements. Liabilities, by which we primarily mean underwriting strategies. Assets, meaning the vast amount of money that insurers hold. And operations, which is the internal functioning of an insurer. And he said that to be truly sustainable, all three areas had to be aligned with ESG aspirations. For the purposes of this meditation, I am most interested in underwriting strategies for reasons that I'll come back to, but I do briefly want to make a couple of observations on operations and assets. With operations, we have seen huge progress in the S element of ESG, the social element, particularly in the context of diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. And as an example of this progress, I want to look at one specific story. And the only reason I'm using this example, amongst many other potential options, is because the facts are readily available on Lloyd's website and they create a very clear story of progress. That story concerns the role of women within Lloyd's of London. Prior to 1969, Lloyd's was a male-only environment. Women were not even allowed to be investors in the Lloyd's market, a role known as a name. The first female name was Liliana Archibald in 1973, so 50 years ago this year. Shortly before that, in either 1969 or 1970, depending on who you believe, Countess Inchcape had become the first female underwriter. But, and to modernise, this is utterly incredible, she wasn't allowed to conduct business personally. Instead, she had to communicate with her clients through a male agent. Yeah. It wasn't until 1976 that Kate Slavinska became the first female underwriter allowed in the room, which is the name given to the trading floor at Lloyd's. That's not even 50 years ago. But it did herald a rapid change thereafter, and in an article on the Insurance Museum website, Victoria Phoenix says that by 1983, more than 400 women were regularly broking risks in the room, and nearly 4,000 were names. Now, I'm going to ask you a question and you must guess the answer in your head. When do you think was the first female CEO appointed of a Lloyd's insurer? Well, 
For anyone who guessed 2002, you may bathe in the warm glow of intellectual smugness. In 2002, Barbara Merry became CEO of Hardy Underwriting Group, now CNA Hardy. But that is just 21 years ago. Of course, in 2014, Inga Beale, now Dame Inga Beale, was appointed the first and so far only female CEO of Lloyd's. Now, obviously, we still have a long way to go before we achieve gender parity, let alone in other areas of historical discrimination. But let's not forget how far we have come in the last few decades, nor indeed how much we can achieve in the next few decades. So that's operations. As for assets... The impact of ESG has, of course, affected insurers' investment strategies. And this is of vital importance, because the way in which insurers had used their money has always had an impact on society. As we discussed in Meditation 4, Unmoved Mover, it was the investment money from US insurers such as Robert Morris that helped to finance the US Revolutionary War. And over the centuries, UK insurers have helped to fund the state in its various escapades. As such, how insurers use their assets is a vitally important aspect of an insurer's social purpose. And it is one area where an insurer can choose one approach over another. It is an area where an insurer can make moral choices. But to be honest, I don't want to spend time discussing assets because that world of investment is mainstream ESG. What I really want to discuss, as I mentioned earlier, is underwriting strategy. Because this is the one element that is unique to insurers. It is the core activity of an insurer and it is what defines an insurer. And it is the underwriting process that drives insurance's role as the unmoved mover or as the mycorrhizal system. So let's consider underwriting strategies. Earlier, before my digression into operations and assets, I asked, Should we give insurance a social purpose? Another way of expressing that question is, should underwriting strategy move away from moral neutrality? Should insurance be withdrawn from sectors of our society for moral reasons? But actually, maybe even that isn't really the question to answer. So let's rephrase the question again. Rather than should underwriting strategies move away from moral neutrality, let the question be, will underwriting strategies move away from moral neutrality? And I believe the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Whether or not they should, I believe that insurers will start making underwriting decisions based on moral grounds. Indeed, they already are, with the rise of ESG syndicates and insurers. And the impetus for that is, and will continue to be, the climate crisis. Chapter 7. Mutually Insured Destruction In June 2021, something extraordinary happened in British Columbia in Canada. And to put what I'm about to say in context... The average temperature in June in that part of the world is between 17 and 20 degrees centigrade on the coast and up to 25 degrees inland. And that's 77 degrees Fahrenheit in Old Mully. So basically, very pleasant. Jeans and t-shirt temperature, although you may take an extra layer with you just in case it gets a bit cold in the evening. However, in June 2021, a heat dome formed over Western North America. I heard about this in the news and it was the first time that I had ever heard the phrase heat dome. According to the Royal Meteorological Society, a heat dome is formed when an area of high pressure stays over the same area for days or even weeks, trapping very warm air underneath, rather like a lid on a pot. And that is what happened in British Columbia. It resulted in the highest temperature ever recorded in Canada at 49.6 degrees centigrade. That's 121.3 degrees Fahrenheit. This occurred in a place called Lytton, a village about 150 kilometres or 100 miles northeast of Vancouver. 
To put this in further context, only four US states have ever had a higher temperature. The desert states of New Mexico, Nevada and Arizona, plus Death Valley in California. Over 1,400 people died and losses of 8.9 billion US dollars were caused by wildfires. The day after Lytton suffered the record temperature, a fire moving at 10 to 20 kilometres per hour swept through the village, destroying 90% of the buildings and killing two people. For me, and I'm clearly no expert, but for me, this was the first event that screamed climate change. Now, obviously, by 2021, there had already been countless floods and heat waves and windstorms that collectively evidenced that something strange was going on with the global climate. But each one individually could be dismissed as a day of bad weather. But the heat dome and the destruction of Lytton, now, they were so weird and so anomalous that it was impossible to dismiss. Meteorologists stated that it was a 1,000-year event that had been made 150 times more likely by climate change. And all this happened when the average global temperature was just 1.2 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. By 2100, it is anticipated that we may be between 2 and 4 degrees above pre-industrial levels, with a median of 2.7 degrees. Please forgive me for labouring this point, but 2.7 degrees is 1.5 degrees higher, or more than double, where we are now. If heat domes can form over British Columbia at 1.2 degrees, who knows what climate events will be unleashed if we get to 2.7 degrees. Every year, the World Economic Forum produces a Global Risks Report, which considers a wide variety of global dangers such as infectious diseases, cybercrime, the breakdown of critical information infrastructure, geoeconomic confrontation, the use of weapons of mass destruction and, and so on. And it then rates them in order of seriousness. To be honest, it's not a jolly list. It is a summary of human fear, a modern-day version of the vision of hell in Hieronymus Bosch's painting Garden of Earthly Delights. Anyway, the executive summary of the 2023 report sets out two lists of global risks. The first list sets out the top 10 short-term risks, being risks that may occur within the next two years. And the second list sets out the top 10 longer-term risks. The short-term list is, unsurprisingly perhaps, topped by the cost-of-living crisis. But five of the remaining nine global risks fall within the broader category of the environment. So that is 50% of the top 10 short-term risks that are environmental in nature the longer-term list is even more dominated by environmental risks. Six of the ten are environmental, including the top four, which are, in reverse order, biodiversity loss and ecosystem collapse, natural disasters and extreme weather events, failure of climate change adaptation, and failure to mitigate climate change. So that is 60% of the long-term list that is environmental in nature. And it could be argued that two of the remaining four risks are also linked to environmental issues, namely large-scale involuntary migration and erosion of social cohesion and societal polarisation. So, why does this create a moral problem for insurance? Well, because of this. There are many industries that are high emitters of greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide, the oil and gas industries, energy, aviation, farming, motor, and so on. And all these industries are insured. When I was growing up, the thing my generation feared was nuclear war. And the theory that a nuclear war would quickly escalate, one ballistic missile leading to another ballistic missile and then another, wiping out civilization, was given the acronym MAD. M-A-D which stood for Mutually Assured Destruction. Well, some would say that the climate crisis is an example of mutually insured destruction. That insurance, by insuring in particular the fossil fuel industries, is enabling the destruction of the environment. 
In May 2023, The Guardian newspaper reported that some students at the UK's top universities had written to leading insurers in London stating, We refuse to put our professional careers at the service of climate wreckers that insure those responsible for the climate crisis. In this way, insurers are coming under pressure to use their position as insurers to force the pace on the transition to net zero by denying or threatening to deny insurance from certain industries. In January 2023, our guest on Insurance Covered was Peter Bossard of the Sunrise Project. Peter is also the global coordinator of Insure Our Future, which is a social movement that seeks to hold insurance companies to account for their role in the climate crisis. Peter, in effect, made the same argument that I made in Meditation 4, Unmoved Mover, which is that insurance influences history in unseen ways. The term that Peter used to describe insurance was the invisible hand, a metaphor first used by the Scottish moral philosopher Adam Smith. When I asked Peter why insurers should withdraw insurance from the fossil fuel industry, he said, Insurers have always argued for social responsibility, their own social responsibility, and so now they should accept this responsibility and stop insuring activities that are clearly detrimental to the public good. Yes, but why, I asked. First, he said, they should do so for moral reasons. Boom, and there it is. They should do so for moral reasons. In his opinion, the climate crisis has created a moral dilemma for insurers. Because insurance, as we have already said, takes on the morality of that which it insures. And that normally isn't a problem because normally that which an insurer insures is morally good, or at the very least, there is a strong case to say that it is morally good. For example, there is no mainstream challenge to the morality of life insurance or health insurance or property insurance or kind of virtually any other type of insurance. But when it comes to climate change, the position is different because there are moral objections to any form of insurance that may enable the climate crisis, which means that each insurer, when deciding its underwriting strategy, must consider what it believes to be the right thing to do. And that is a moral decision, which means that whatever they decide, whichever way they go, they will be doing so on moral grounds. Which is why my main prediction for insurance over the next few decades is that we will see the wholly unexpected triumph of morality. Oh, so, sorry, so, so, sorry, sorry, hang on a moment. Just one more thing. As I write this, a hurricane is headed for California for the first time in 84 years. Just, just thought I'd mention it. It seemed relevant. Oh, oh, and sorry, NASA has just confirmed that globally, July 2023 was the hottest month since records began in 1880. And according to the Scientific American magazine, it might have been the hottest month for 120,000 years. Hmm. Anyway, you can play the music now. Chapter 8. Insurance and Society. A Final Meditation. Were it not for the climate crisis, I probably would not have written this last meditation as I have, because ESG by itself would probably not have justified the grandiose title of The Unexpected Triumph of Morality. Indeed, there is of course already a backlash against ESG as part of the wider culture wars in which both sides of the political divide seek to argue in favour of freedom of speech by saying that the other side shouldn't be allowed to speak. At least, I think that's what's going on. To be honest, I lose track of the weirdness of it all. It seems to involve a lot of people being angry a lot of the time about a lot of things, which just seems to me to be a rubbish way to live life. Anyway, even if that were not the case, I think it would nonetheless be fair to say that ESG has always had the potential to be a temporary phenomenon. As I mentioned earlier, Shareholder theory has not gone away, 
And it is easy to see how the philosophy of profit without boundaries will again assert its dominance in years to come and reduce ESG to a supporting role. So if climate change did not exist, this final meditation would not have been about morality. It would probably have been about technological disruption or big data or excessive regulation or or the exposure to systemic risks or any one of the number of issues that you can find on Google if you tap in the words, the future of insurance. And these are all fascinating topics. And, and who knows, maybe I'll do a future meditation on them at some point. But it seems to me that none of these issues is likely to have the effect of transforming the nature of insurance. In these meditations, we have focused on the big changes in the history of insurance, the ones that have fundamentally altered its direction. We started with the invention of Babylonian insurance nearly 4,000 years ago. We then discussed the creation of premium-based insurance in Italy in the early 1300s. Then we highlighted the appearance of the insurance company in the late 1600s and the principle of the beneficial selfishness of strangers. Then we turned our focus to the mathematical revolution in the late 1700s that enabled insurance, for the first time, to understand life forwards. And finally, we explored the explosion of product creation from 1850 and throughout the 20th century. When looked at against these totemic changes, issues such as, oh, I don't know, the use of blockchain or the impact of amendments to Solvency II or the risk of another pandemic, well, they simply do not compare. I mean, they're important. I won't deny that. And they will have a role to play in how insurance develops. But they are variations on the existing theme of insurance. The one possible exception to that is artificial intelligence and the possibility of end-to-end automated insurance, so removing the human element entirely from insurance. If that were to happen, it would be a radical change. But the danger of making any predictions based on technology is that you can say something that dates very quickly. And who knows, maybe that will be the case with my comments about morality. But I don't think it will, because... The climate crisis is not going to go away and therefore the moral issues around the climate crisis are not going to go away. As such, the climate crisis has the potential to generate another seismic shift in the fundamental nature of insurance because insurance will have to, in my opinion, step away from its position of moral neutrality. When it comes to lines of business directly linked to climate change, insurers will have to choose what to insure and what not to ensure. And that will be a moral decision. And I think that may then lead to an existential consideration of what insurance actually is, and what that means. And I tried to do that in Meditation 7, towards the philosophy of insurance. And whilst that is clearly not the finished article, it may hint at some of the questions that insurance will either consciously or unconsciously ask itself in the coming decades. And Consistent with Meditation 7, I think that these questions will revolve around the five F-words. Fragility, fear, future, faith and freedom. Because climate change is making the world more fragile. It is making us more fearful. It is threatening to make our future less secure. And it is likely to reduce our freedoms. As such, If insurance is seen as enabling climate change, it may strike at the heart of the faith relationship between society and insurance. So what is insurance to do? Well, where this question leads is not for me to decide. And of course, it will not be easy to answer because that is the nature of moral questions. There is always truth on both sides. Whether we like it or not, society is currently reliant on fossil fuels. As such, if insurance is withdrawn too quickly from the fossil fuel industries, it potentially causes a completely different set of societal issues. And there is the broader issue of whether insurance should be withdrawn from industries that are perfectly legal and are indeed subsidised by multiple governments around the world. But in response to that, there is the counter-argument that If insurance enables climate change, then instead of creating resilience, 
insurance is creating weakness, creating more hurricanes, more firestorms, more tornadoes, more floods, more desertification, more deforestation, more heat waves, more fragility, more fear, more loss. And in the process, is making more areas of the world uninsurable. In short, that the insurance industry has become its own moral hazard. Either way, in the coming decades, we will be asking insurers to become philosophers and theologians. And this has the potential to lead to something new. Because insurance will have to emerge from the shadows where it has lived unseen for 700 years. It'll have to put its hand up and say, um, Hi, it's, uh, it's insurance here. Uh, I, I know you think I'm rather boring, but uh, and you may not have been aware of this, but but I've been influencing society for centuries. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there anything I can do to help? An early indication of this emergence from the shadows was the creation of the Net Zero Insurance Alliance by the United Nations. The alliance was set up to support insurers as they consciously worked towards decarbonising their insurance and reinsurance underwriting portfolios. Of course, the Alliance has recently seen several high-profile departures, but that is not because of a lack of belief amongst insurers. It is because of fears of antitrust litigation and the aforementioned culture wars, particularly in the US. And the departures will not, I suspect, alter the direction of travel and the drive towards net zero, even for those insurers that have left the Alliance. Anyway, we're coming towards the end, and at the outset of this meditation, I stated that the unexpected triumph of morality had the potential to generate the greatest change in insurance since the creation of premium-based insurance in the early 1300s. That was possibly hyperbolic. Okay, it was definitely hyperbolic, but I do think it may create the biggest shift in insurance for over 100 years since the time of Cuthbert Heath. Because for 700 years, insurance has worked as the unmoved mover, influencing history through nudge and nuance. But now, it will have to make deliberate decisions that consciously push the world in one direction or another. Insurance may not itself be a moral system, but it exists within a moral system. And in that respect, I think that the climate activists, such as Peter Bossard, are teaching us something about insurance that we ourselves have perhaps overlooked. That insurance is an intrinsic part of modern society's moral matrix. And in the coming decades, insurance will have to play its part in that moral matrix as we collectively fight against climate change. Insurance can no longer be hidden. Indeed, if anything, insurance will have a more intimate role within society than ever before. The climate crisis will open people's eyes to the critical importance of insurance to business, to trade and to society, and to the fact that everything to do with humanity is connected by the invisible mycorrhizal threads of insurance. And of course, insurance will also be essential for the transition to net zero, because insurance is the great enabler the great catalyst. It can speed up the transition. It can enable new technologies, respond to new risks with innovative new products and smooth our otherwise bumpy path to net zero. Over the centuries, insurance has given us freedom, freedom to trade, to live, to travel, to manufacture, to heal, to build, to do business, to provide advice, to work safely, to construct, to make films, to communicate, to put satellites in space, to be human. And now we need it to give us the freedom to achieve net zero. The next few decades have the potential to be the most important in the 300,000 year history of Homo sapiens. And society will need insurance as never before. Thank you for listening to this final meditation. In the words of Jim Morrison of The Doors, this is the end, my beautiful friend, the end. And if you have listened to all eight meditations, or indeed any of them, you truly are a beautiful friend. 
This has been a labour of love for me and I should emphasise that throughout, any views expressed are my own. If you have any comments, observations or disagreements, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk or message me on LinkedIn. I would love to hear from you. In due course, we will probably spin this out into a separate podcast series. But for now, that is it from Meditations on Insurance and Society. Farewell, and I hope you will join us again for our next episode of Insurance Covered in a fortnight's time. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.